When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix. From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of Howard Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's three tiers for Boris Johnson. Hip, hip. Uh, no. Hip, hip. No. Hip, hip. Nobody seems to be terribly excited about these three tiers for Boris. I'll tell you what, actually, let's forget that. Today's the day that the Prime Minister of Great Britain will disregard local councillors, business leaders, mayors and even the medical advice that introducing harsher and harsher lockdown measures will not only create massive hardship for individuals and firms, but that it will actually shatter the economy. After convening a Cobra meeting this morning, Boris Johnson will address the House of Commons with his new three-tier traffic light system for large swathes of the north of England. But of course, it's not just three tiers, is it? It's three tiers with several wrinkles, some exceptions, and a lot of different impositions. Manchester's Mayor Andy Burnham has warned that jobs will be lost, business will collapse, and the fragile economies of the North will be shattered. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a great supporter of Andy Burnham's. I'm not suddenly banging the Labour drum here. I'm not suddenly saying Andy Burnham's got it right and Boris Johnson has it, because Andy Burnham hasn't been about uh, as much use as a chocolate fire guard either. Tory MP for Tatton, Esther McVeigh, urged the Prime Minister not to lock down any further. She says all it is doing is causing more pain and more damage. And I can tell you that judging by the people that have spoken to us here at Talk Radio, judging by the people uh, who are on social media addressing me on Talk Radio as well, the people of the north of England are not interested in any further lockdowns. They are not interested in any further loss of business any more uh, than they would like to see uh, a new bubonic plague starting up. What we do know, and we're going to give you the figures, is that the reasons why an awful lot of northern cities have seen a spike uh, in cases of COVID-19 is because the students have all gone back to university. The big question this morning is why is Boris Johnson so convinced that this is the right way to go. We'll be asking that question to Professor Carol Sakura, a man who has consistently called for common sense in the treatment of this ghastly virus. And ghastly, it certainly is. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're also joined by Peter Hitchens with his take on the latest policies coming out of Downing Street and why the data is being rather deliberately manipulated to make things seem worse than they are. I'll be asking also why the police seem to think they should be sitting in on every political interview now conducted after Darren Grimes was threatened with arrest because of what he didn't say to David Starkey. I'm going to be saying maybe we should be visiting the police and sitting in on their interviews to make sure they're doing their jobs. They've got no business sticking their noses into free speech. Thank you very much indeed. I'll also be asking when Twitter suddenly became the arbiter of COVID-19 expertise. They're now in the business of telling President Donald Trump which of his own statements is allowed. Amazing, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. Also, is Meghan Markle really the most trolled person in history? And is the National Maritime Museum actually going to rebrand Lord Nelson as a racist? Unbelievable, isn't it? It's only Monday. And we've already got a bucket load of stuff to be going for. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome to the first edition of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is Monday morning. It is, of course, a rather beautiful day out there in London town. The sky ceiling is high. The cloud ceiling is high. Uh, the temperature is not too bad. It's not raining. Uh, there is much to look forward to. And uh, people say to me all the time, your station is an absolute beacon of light in a sea of darkness. And that's absolutely true, because that is indeed what we are. But what you must never do uh, is think that just because uh, we are not 
absolutely shouting from the rooftops what a brilliant job that Boris Johnson is doing, uh, that we are in some way like everybody else, because we're not. We are unlike everybody else. We are the voices of common sense. The listeners are the people who tell us the truth, and we're interested in what you have to say. So please do call us today, 0344 499 1000, because I don't think there are many people left in this country who actually think that what the government is about to announce today is the right thing to do. And I believe that one of those people, more than likely, is Professor Carol Secor, a former head of the WHO Cancer Programme, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. Professor Carroll, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, listen, you and I both know uh, that public opinion is not always the best guide to what is the best and right thing to do. But on this occasion, I actually really am struggling to find a large body of opinion in the country that thinks that what Boris is about to do with this lockdown, uh, this three tier traffic light system uh, is, is, is any use at all. Absolutely. It is just craziness. Um, basically, a whole swathe of towns are full of university students. Yeah. Liverpool, 38% of the population is now a university student. Leeds, Manchester, they have several universities, all very good, you know, fantastic. The students have gone back and wonderful. They have parties, they go drinking. And of course, the case number in terms of the PCR, if you do the swab, has gone up. Illness has not gone up. These people don't get ill with this. There is asymptomatic but positive with the swab. Mm. So there's no scientific basis for closing the whole town down. Uh, by all means, uh, look for focused protection. Make sure the elderly, the vulnerable understand that it's best not to go to a bar in, in Liverpool. But if you're young and cheerful, just do it. And I, I really can't see why we need to go down this economic disastrous route for the northern cities. It is related to this. Well, exactly right. And I mean, if you look at some of the statistics of the places, as you say, quite rightly, which are at the highest peaks of infection, they're all university towns. You know, I've actually got some numbers here, which I can quite happily read out to you, which show you that, you know, Nottingham, a big university town, Newcastle, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester, all big university towns with big sort of what you might call uh, incoming uh, groups of students who have obviously spread this virus. But the point is nobody's still asking the question, Carol, you know, how damaging is the spreading of the virus actually becoming? And I've seen another graph this morning which shows comparable deaths to what it was like in March. And it's not at all comparable. No, it's totally different. And, you know, the key thing, and this is the only thing that would change my mind if the hospital admissions get out of control. Yeah. The admissions get out of control. The, the, the intensive care unit admissions get out of control, the number on ventilators. If you look at yesterday's data, you know, 641 hospital admissions, it's sort of flattened at around six to 700 a day. If you take Spain, which is about a month behind us, four weeks behind us, and see how their hospital admissions went, they came down, uh, the equivalent of next week, they'll start coming down again. If that happens, we don't need to worry. The people that go into hospital are not the people that go to university. Uh, the, on the whole, they're elderly. The average age of hospital admissions is over 80 for, uh, for most COVID patients. So it's very different. The other bit of good news, which is just in, is from NHS 111. They put out every 24 hours the number of triage calls they with COVID-like symptoms. And yesterday, it was less than 10,000 for the first time. 10,000 sounds a lot, but it's been running at 20, 25,000 three or four weeks ago. So something is changing. And this is the wrong time for these grandiose, totally unenforceable schemes. Where do you put the boundary to your scheme? Uh, you know, if the pub just across the boundary is open, people just shoot over the boundary. Too. Right. Well, this is the thing. I mean, what we're getting, as ever, are kind of what can only be described as kind of fragmented conversations with different mayors, different councils. You know, we've got Liverpool saying at one point, maybe we'll be able to keep the restaurants open, but not the bars. You know, as you say quite rightly, you know, there'll be somewhere like, you know, 50 yards down the road uh, where the bar will be open. There will be somewhere across the Pennines where you can go and get yourself, uh, you know, uh, a flagon of cognac, if you wish. You know, exactly. there doesn't seem to be any, you know, there, there's no real way. And also, at the end of the day, we've been saying for a while, Professor, that lockdowns don't really work anyway. I, we're on the same hymn sheet, I can see. And the difficulty for government, though, is they've got too many advisors. Um, you know, Sage is too big. 
and uh, it doesn't have to justify its action. Yeah. And it, it works like any public sector committee. You get 40 people, they all have a vote, and they want to go home at a reasonable time point. So they've all got, got to come to a consensus. There's no leadership there. There's no chief man that's going to say, or chief woman that says, this is what we're going to do. Otherwise, you don't get out of the room. Um, they bubble along and they come to a consent. I've seen it for all my years in the NHS. They bubble along and then suddenly a decision's made and everyone feels comfortable because they want to. They, they've basically beaten down the argument of those that want to do it a different way. And they're naturally very cautious. The stuff I've seen written by them privately is extremely cautious. Yeah. They don't want to be blamed for a single death. And, you know, quite frankly, we are going to get out of this. It's going to take a bit longer than we thought. We are coming out of it. And this is not the time for these desperate measures in towns which clearly the cause and effect are the students going back. As right. You right well, exactly. But also, I was listening to a news report this morning, Professor, and the end of the news report, uh, it said, and one person died um, yesterday. And you go, well, hang on. You know, if we actually examined every single um, death in this country lumped them all together, you know, talked about, you know, say we did a, uh, an update every single day on people who died of cancer, for example, you know, you would think cancer was probably a bit more of an important uh, uh, target to try and, and fix rather than COVID because you'd probably get bigger numbers. You know, there are 500 people a day that die from cancer. I know that. Yeah. Every day, winter and summer, it just goes on absolutely flat, constant. And, you know, a thousand people get cancer and half will die from it two or three years later. Yeah. And so the numbers are very, very simple. Heart disease, same thing. You know what the numbers are going to be. With this, the number of deaths are extremely small and they are going to come down as we go through the next few weeks. So let's get society back. Let's not do what Boris wants to do. And it's just completely impractical to, to police. I don't see how it can be brought out basically right. in a civilised way. And if you're talking about which we're hearing, and it may well be that they're softening us up for a, for a slightly less um, sort of draconian announcement when it finally comes later on this afternoon. But basically, shutting down gyms, shutting down the ability for most people to go and mix with anybody else, shutting down bars and restaurants, shutting down effectively socialising for six months, very possibly. I mean, God knows what kind of damage that's going to inflict on people. You know, mental health, very difficult to measure. And, you know, cancer, heart disease, strokes, you can just measure them very easily. But mental health, especially in what I would call normal people, people with no history of a psychiatric disorder. Yeah. So pushing people to the edge. And, of course, it depends on your social fabric, your social connections, your family background, all sorts of things in terms of your support system. Everyone needs a support system. We all have one. Some can do with very little. Others need a lot more. But, you know, a student locked in a room with a, a computer and that's it. Maybe, uh, you know, it, it can't be good for people's mental health. So no. we bubbles where people can mix somehow. Exactly right. Let me read you some of these stats, and you may have seen these numbers. Uh, and this is per local authority, right? Nottingham local authority, the neighbours, specific neighbourhood, University Park, Lenton Abbey, Jubilee Campus. 757 cases of COVID, 6,870 per 100,000, right? Guess what the student percentage is there? 54%, right? Now, look at this one. 56% uh, in Leeds, Hyde Park Corner, Woodhouse Cliff, 353 cases. That's 2,541 per 100,000. And you're talking 56% of the population are at college. And in both of those regions, they are less than a mile away from the university. And if you actually look how many are actually ill with any illness. Yeah. Are there any of them ill? No. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, psychiatric disease. I mean, they just don't have any symptoms. They've been tested, found the virus by PCR, and that's it. It's it's, it's craziness to have the whole town locking down. And, you know, the long-term financial effects on a lot of people is going to be severe. And sure, you can argue about the amount of money coming from central government. That's not the solution, because in the end, it's got to stop. And in the end, there will be people that are facing financial ruin that have worked very hard for their businesses over the years. Yeah. These that need to be supported now. And in terms of the students, right, I've got a question here from Yvonne who says, why are the students going to get tested anyway? Are the universities testing them? And who are these people who run to get tested at the drop of a hat? And it's a good, a good point because if you don't have any symptoms, you're not supposed to be getting tested, are you? 
That, that's exactly right. There is no point testing asymptomatic people. Now, the airlines are doing it to go to certain parts of the world. And that's fair enough, because you're going to put a load of people into a tube for 12 hours. So maybe you should test those. But other than that, if you've got no symptoms, don't bother. Right. Temperature checks are a much better assessment if someone's ill or not. Now, what the temperature check doesn't do is tell you, is it corona or is it uh, flu right. or is it but it is a better way of seeing if someone's ill and without someone having a temperature there is no point testing anybody no indeed and i mean what is the long-term effect basically of this because what we're looking at are university yeah. students who appear to be getting it all uh, anyway no matter what the lockdown does so they're going to end up all presumably uh, becoming covid positive um, all over the place, but none of them are going to be in hospital. Most of them are going to be absolutely fine. Some of them might have a snuffly nose or a bad time in bed for a week or something like that. But most of them, by and large, so in a month's time, what's, what's that going to look like? So what I can see is the students will be immune, uh, obviously, because they're going to catch it from each other, whatever you do. You right. can't stop it. And uh, uh, what we have to do is to look at we know who's vulnerable to this now we know who can get serious illness and they tend to be over 70 they tend to have other illnesses and these are the people that need protection they need to and it's up to them it's no point marching them off to a prison camp somewhere and isolating them that way they, they, people understand it and we need to help them make sure that they don't go to places where they don't control their airspace. So they don't go into a supermarket, they don't go to the public library. So a volunteer has to help them do that. And there are plenty of volunteers that will do that. That's the solution. Uh, why sort of make everybody do something when it's only a small percentage of the population that need it? Now, okay, we can't predict exactly who's at greater risk than others, but we, we have a pretty good idea. And if people know that, it's up to them to make a decision of the risk they want to live with. And going on public transport is probably the riskiest thing we can do. And yet, you know, I was on a train in the West Country like yesterday, last evening, and it was pretty busy. Mm. And it's good to see that people are willing to... There were some people my age, which is old, you know, and uh, it's good to see that happen. Absolutely right. Now, a couple of people have asked me this question, so I don't know whether you can help us on it. You know, the, the Public Health England weekly coronavirus disease surveillance report, which goes out. The last one that went out said this will be the last COVID-19 surveillance report uh, as of the 8th of October uh, 2020. Uh, the government in this report uh, will be published in a combined weekly flu and COVID-19 surveillance report. So, so basically, as of um, last week, they're now going to combine the weekly flu and COVID-19 surveillance report. Now, obviously, there are some people who think this is some kind of massive conspiracy and therefore the government are going to be trying to hide figures. I don't think that's the case. But what do you make of that? And what's the result of that? I think it, it, it is confusing for everybody. And it, it, the way in which the data has been presented is pretty appalling. And it's, sometimes it's not. It's often late. Mm. Uh, it's supposed to come out at four o'clock every day on the government website. And it doesn't. And, uh, you know, the key figures are the... the, the the NHS 111, the hospital admissions, the number of cases, and then the uh, the deaths at the end of it. And you can get those, but it's getting increasingly opaque to find that. So it's as though someone doesn't want you to see all the data nicely because it doesn't actually justify the actions that are going to happen on Wednesday in these in, in tier three. Right. Uh, that's the problem and that's the conspiracy theory let's see the data so everyone can look at it it's there somewhere but you just have to struggle more to get it yes. european data is on the stockholm the european center for disease control in stockholm including our data but our data is the same on that as it obviously website so it's uh, it's difficult to find these things but we gradually we're getting better at understanding where it is it, it's not logical Public Health England is closing down, as you know. They've got an interim chief executive. Uh, it's going to merge. It's going to create. It's the same people. You can't suddenly find uh, hundreds of public health experts anywhere else no. other than public health England. So no, it's, it's, like, it's a bit like sort of sending everybody out onto the pavement for a fire alarm, uh, right, for a test, for a drill, and then inviting them all back in again. And, and you change the title. You right. change the Move the desks around a bit, you know, put somebody else's yeah. logo on the door, you know. Yeah, and spend spend you know fifty thousand getting one of the the consultancy companies to devise you a new logo. That's that's what. Yeah. Happened. If only every time Public Health England estimated fifty thousand, it turned out to be twelve, we'd all be saving money, yeah. wouldn't we? No, um, you know Public Health 
is it always reminds me of, of Jon Snow, who removed the pump handle in yes. Soho. That, that was direct epidemiology. Here he comes and he decides he's going to do it. He works out that that pump caused cholera way back in 1852. Uh, that pump causes cholera. Let's take the handle off. These people won't be able to use it. A lot of grumbles. Now, Boris is not the pump handle man. Putting tier three lockdown on Liverpool is not what Jon Snow would have done. I mean, it just wouldn't have thought of doing it. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be so crass as to do it. No, quite. You and I should meet up in the Jon Snow pub and have a drink to celebrate, Professor. I think we have to do that. That may well be the way to keep the businesses going in this country. But listen, as ever, thank you very much indeed, Professor Carol Sakura. Talking complete and utter common sense, uh, head of the uh, former head of the WHO Cancer Programme, now Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham, a man who knows very, very well that what is about to happen uh, should not be about to happen. The Independent Republic of My. Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to talk now uh, to Jake Berry, Conservative MP for Rossendale and Darwin, which I believe, Jake, is in uh, the red zone. A very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. So what do you make of all of this? I know we're still waiting to see precisely what the measures are going to be. Uh, they will presumably be slightly different depending on um, which part of which part of the north you're in. Um, but there's an awful lot of uh, what I would regard as pretty staunch opposition to it. Well, look, what I've been saying to the government is come up with a simple national system which has local data and decision-making at its heart. I feel that that's where the government is going. I think the big danger we have is that we are living in a sort of information blackout. I want to know, what are the parameters that will see Rosendale and Darwin leave the red zone? Because we need to take people with us and we need to enable our businesses to plan you know, in two weeks' time, we're going to be over the line. Let's start buying stock in again. Let's start getting staff back through the door to make preparations. The government needs to treat the people of the north and any other area of this country like grown-ups. If they expect us to comply with lockdown, give us the data, bring the public with you, and make sure we know when we're going to be out of it. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I've been saying this morning is the information I've got in front of me, which makes very interesting reading, and it's a case-by-case basis of... Uh, uh, parts of the country where there are an awful lot of students, Nottingham, Sheffield, Leeds, Newcastle, Manchester, Liverpool, um, all of them uh, have high percentages of students living in them and all of the cases which are high would appear to be in student locations. And so I think there's a slight kind of disconnect going on here. The government's saying we have to lock down Nottingham, for example, when it's very clear that the problem is the university. Well, I heard your previous caller who was talking about living in Nottingham and approaching retirement and wanting mm. to be free. Look, when this crisis started, the Prime Minister brilliantly said, look, I'm in a level with the British public. This is what we've got to do. This is why. This is the progress we're going to make. And it seems to me that that initial sort of frank exchange of information has disappeared. And that's why I'm really pressing the government to get back to the stage Let's stop people treating people as grown-ups. None of us want to get this disease. We all want to play our part. But in truth, give us the data that shows why are we being locked down and, crucially, when are we going to leave. And if that's related to students, let's have a frank conversation about whether students should be uh, returning to university after the Christmas break. If it's related to schools, to workplaces, to leisure, let's have an honest conversation about what we need to do to beat this disease. Yes, because, I mean, last Wednesday, uh, Sir Keir Starmer asked the question uh, of Boris Johnson, could you please provide us with the uh, medical evidence as to why there's a 10pm curfew? Inexplicably, he then kind of went along and agreed with it the following day. There is meant to be a vote on that today, I think. I don't know whether that's still going ahead. But there doesn't appear to be an awful lot of evidence for many of these lockdown measures being put into place. Well, of course, the evidence changes. This is a dynamic situation. But just a few weeks ago, when in Rosendale and Darwin, my constituency, we were told that we couldn't mix from anyone with other households. We, members of Parliament, popped up and said, well, you know, what about pubs? Mm. And we were told that pubs were the same, similar sort of threat as a, a one-legged horse competing in the Grand National. It didn't make any difference. We could all go to the pub. We right. could drink. We could be merry. Now we're told, of course, that pubs and leisure are the main vectors. So if the evidence base is changing, and I'm prepared giving the government the benefit of the doubt to accept that that evidence base is changing, show it to us. Yeah. Give us the information. Have a grown-up conversation with the public. I think the government would be surprised 
if we start treating the population like adults, perhaps we'll all behave a bit more like adults and do our bit and comply with all of these new rules. Well, quite. But the problem, of course, as well, is that the, a lot of the so-called evidence is, is not evidence at all. It's a kind of scientific model. For example, my understanding of why they've decided that pubs need to be locked down at 10 o'clock at night is based on a completely spurious model of two people meeting up who may or may not have the infection. And so it's all about sort of, you know, projection rather than about fact. And I saw uh, a, a really great tweet, actually, from a, a pub owner in Newcastle over the weekend who said that basically he could get up out of his house, he could walk to his nearest bus stop, he could get on the bus, he could take a bus into town, he could go uh, shopping, he could walk into Greg's and get himself a pasty, he could get back on another bus uh, and go home, all of which he could do without any kind of fear or favour. But if he goes into a pub, he's not allowed to have a drink because the pub's closed. And that doesn't make much sense. Well, it may make sense. You know, that may be the right thing to do, but the truth is we simply don't have... It doesn't sound like it makes sense, does it? But, Jake, it doesn't sound like it makes sense. It feels wrong, doesn't it? Well, I mean, if if you can wander about freely inside a supermarket, inside a bus, you know, inside any other form of public transport, you can walk into another food um, outlet and get some food and eat it, but you can't go and have a drink in a pub. And I mean, I'm not saying this because I, I believe that pubs are the be all and end all of life, but there are people whose livelihoods depend on them. Well, not that. I think there are people who rely on having a drink to get through this current crisis. Well, there's also that. But, but you can have. A, I mean, you I can mean, you can have a drink without going to the pub. It's more about for me. For me, it's more about nice the business. The you know. Yeah. No, I completely get that. But look, what you're talking about is, you know, reasonably minded people are looking at some of these restrictions, saying, "Look, I just don't get that. That doesn't make sense. How come I can go and wander around Marks and Spencers, but I can't have a beer in my?" local pub you're right but this is why i'm calling on the government if there is a strong rationale and scientific base behind it show it to us you know say look we expect you to do the right thing and this is why at the moment this is a bit too top down for my liking i actually would like to see local areas and local mayors in the north of england and other parts of the country deciding when we come in and out of lockdown i think that would give them responsibility for keeping their communities safe something they asked for um but that has to be on the basis of evidence and i just come back to this crucial point everyone is talking about areas going into lockdown fine how do we come out there's two problems with that we have surrendered vast amounts of civil liberties to this government some of which date back to the the magna carta i expect to receive those back from the government as quickly as possible and i want them all back now tell me when i will get those rights and liberties back and the second thing is Let's work with local areas so they can plan for when they leave lockdown. If you said, and I'm making this up, that, you know, once your infection rate per 100,000 drops below 400, you'd move from red to amber or whatever the case may be. The week we were at 425 and we'd seen consistent drops in it, we could say, right, all things being well, if we all keep playing the rules, let's have a target. We can be out of lockdown in a week, in a fortnight, in three weeks. And then businesses and communities can plan. But until we start sharing data with some hot, solid targets for people to aim for, then we're simply in lockdown until we're told we're not. Yes. And I don't think that's acceptable. And the one thing that I've been saying, and not because I'm an expert in this, but many people agree with me in the medical side of things, also the people who have signed up to uh, to the Barrington um, Declaration as well, is that actually lockdowns in the end don't really work. We had a lockdown um, and it was it worked at the time because it was supposedly flattening a curve uh, of massive uh, infection and death, which we don't have at the moment at all. Um, but after the, you open it up again, uh, suddenly here we are once more with a, with a rise in infections. And it's not, it didn't happen in July when the pubs opened. It didn't happen when everybody went to beaches. It didn't happen when loads of people went on holiday. But it did happen when people decided that they wanted to send students back to university. And that's the problem that we currently have. I think we just lost Jake. Are you there, Jake? I am. Sorry. So you are. Sorry. I just lost bit. your picture there for a second. But, but you know, it seems to me that, that the government is incapable of seeing an alternative viewpoint, one which is now being propagated by some very eminent uh, medical people, including Professor Carol Sakura, who we just had on the show. And I just wonder why they're so reluctant to take account of what people are saying about things like cancer, about things like A&E, about things like mental health, all of which is also about the health of the nation. Well, look, number one, I think I agree that lockdown doesn't prevent people getting the disease. It right. delays people getting the disease. That's what we saw over the summer. And that is a really good thing. 
if we want to reduce the peak and protect our NHS, the society getting more slowly and hopefully is coming up with a vaccine before the entire population has had it, is a really good thing. But on the impact on the sort of everyday treatment of the NHS, I know a little bit about this. My mother tragically died in August. She, she was terminally ill. She had cancer. But at her funeral with the 10 people or 15 people who were able to attend, we all sat around saying to each other, you know, we just really think the outcome might have been different if she'd received treatment when the NHS shut down. Now, yeah. the long-term outcome for her would have been the same. She, she was very sadly and tragically terminally ill. But we as a family wanted to have more time with her. And what I just think is really unfortunate, that's just me and, you know, lots of families will have experienced exactly the same thing. And I just don't really want more families sat around having those conversations at funerals no. because um, we all have an expectation that the NHS, which is an awesome, fantastic organisation, will do its best to help our, our loved ones when they need it. Now, there was a period of shutdown, and I do believe that in my mother's case and in other cases, people died sooner than they should yeah. or could have done. But they're still and doing it. Think, they're still, still, but they're still doing it, Jake. I mean, I saw a, 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 an announcement from, from a couple of hospitals in London where they're shutting down A&E children's departments because they don't want COVID to spread. Now, if you've got a child uh, who needs an A&E um, treatment or a visit and the, and the local hospital's closed, what are you supposed to do? You know, that's not by way of doing anything other than not. it's not saving the NHS, it's shutting it down. Well, I haven't, I haven't seen that myself. University, but, you know, UCL, UCL and the Royal Free. Yeah, it's, I, I haven't seen the, the information myself, although I, I don't doubt that what you say is correct. But I, I think maybe we should be looking at a differential approach because, of course, people uh, are prevented from visiting their loved ones in hospital at the moment. So there's vast hospital car parks around the country which are lying fallow and unused, and surely there's an opportunity to in the way that we've set up these Nightingale hospitals to turn those car parks into sort of temporary, almost field hospitals, if you like, done by the army uh, to give additional capacity for COVID patients whilst at the same time keeping hospitals going. Of course, in the tuberculosis outbreak in the, in, in the early part of the last century, they divided hospitals into fever hospitals and non-fever hospitals. I do hope that the government is going to look at how we can keep the NHS going. I've spoken to many government ministers about this and they, they really share our concern about people not receiving yeah. treatment. And the final point on mental health, I just want to come back to this show is the way out of lockdown. Because one of the best ways we can help with the mental health and protect the mental health of the communities that I as an MP have the privilege of representing is to say to them, look, there is an end to this. This is what it looks like. Let's work together. We are on a a journey to beat this terrible disease together. But if they can't see the exit point from not seeing their family, from not mixing, from not being in the community, that is extremely depressing and is proven to have very negative effects for people who have underlying mental health issues or mental health issues caused by this virus. Well, a lot more of them are going to have them if that's what carries on. But uh, I'll give you one word of advice on the hospitals. John Redwood thinks we should just use the uh, currently empty Nightingale hospitals for COVID patients, which seems like a pretty good compromise. One final question for you comes from a listener called Andy. Uh, it says, Mike, please could you ask uh, your upcoming Tory guest, would the government be taking these steps if there was a general election tomorrow? Well, I think we would, because I think the overarching responsibility of any government is to keep its people safe. This isn't a party political thing. I mean, look, there's a great sort of myth that is being propagated around our country by sort of uh, by, by everyone, as far as I can tell, that in some way the government is in control of this situation. It's not in control. The virus is in control, as it is in every single country around the world, and the government simply reacts to that. I think so far the government's reacted well, but I do think we have a narrow moment of opportunity here as areas go into a new lockdown for who knows how long to change the way we communicate with the public, to start treating people as grown-ups again, to take people on that journey with us. And I think if we miss that opportunity and two, three weeks into lockdown suddenly say, well, now we'll start telling you why you're not going to be released, that that, that moment will have gone. So I do really call on the government to think very carefully about communicating with the British people about why we're all having to take these extreme and extraordinary steps 
to tackle this disease. Yeah, no, listen, if the government is not in control of this virus, what makes them think that they will ever be in control of it? And what they are in control of is how to deal with the virus that is that is out of control, as you've just put it. Well, I didn't say the virus is out of control, but the virus clearly, you know, doesn't care where you live, doesn't care what your county is, who you vote for. It is a virus and mankind has been involved in a battle with germs and bacteria and viruses for millennia. So the idea that because we live in a modern society, we can sort of tell this virus to go away and it will happen is for the birds. But the government is reacting to it. The government is working hard to keep us safe. It has supported hundreds of thousands, if not millions of workers through the last lockdown. And I hope we'll do so again. The government is reacting well, but it must communicate with us about why we are going into lockdown. And as I say, crucially, with this proportionate, simple and clear new set of national restrictions, how we leave each of those tiers, not just how we go in. Because no one wants a hotel, California lockdown where you can get through the door, but you can never leave again. We all want to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And the government has an opportunity to do that today. Sure. Will you vote against the 10pm curfew tonight? Well, I'm, gonna have, I'm not going to vote against the 10pm curfew. And I'll tell you why, because I think it has to be seen in the round with all the other government measures. I'm not planning to vote against it. But I have told my whip, that um, I won't confirm that to them until I've seen what this three-tiered system looks like. We need to see the interplay of that system and the 10pm curfew and other measures and how we're going to communicate with people that the 10pm curfew is necessary. I've spoken to ministers in uh, departments around government who reassured me that the science is there to validate the 10pm cut-off. If the science is there, if you expect people like me to support it, show us the science and then if it's the right thing to do for our nation, I'll vote for it. Jake Barry, thank you very much indeed. Conservative MP for Rossendale and Darwin, which is currently uh, in the red zone. Uh, Jake said there the government is not in control of this virus. Well, what are they in control of then? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say it's time to speak once more to Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist, because uh, it's that time. Peter, a very good morning to you. Good morning. So uh, you'll be pleased to know that this time we decided not to uh, ask you to hang on uh, for the end of the uh, the briefing from uh, the government health people, because quite frankly, we've seen this game before um, and we know exactly what they're doing. Well, I'm grateful for that because it was almost unbearable to stand in silence, <laughs> grinding my teeth with this rubbish. Uh, came out of the fronts of the faces of these people. Uh, I'm amazed at the sheer brass neck of mm. them continuing to, to to make these extraordinary claims. And they say, no, 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 we're not predicting anything. It's not a prophecy. It doesn't, no, we're just saying, no, not us. Uh, and, uh, and yet all they do is engender panic. Right. Panic engenders uh, shutdowns, and shutdowns engender misery, loss of jobs, smashing of businesses, destruction of education, uh, state interference with funerals, postponement of marriages, all this unending gloom and stupidity, which there seems to be no, no sign of any end to at all. Well, we, we had a Tory MP on, Jake Berry, Conservative MP for Rossendale and Darwin, who admitted, I'm not sure whether it's inadvertently, uh, that basically um, the virus, the, the, gov the government is not in control of the virus. And I said to him, well, if the, if the virus is out of control, then why does the government keep trying to control it? And to which he said, um, I didn't say it was out of control. But clearly, he, that was his inference. I mean, there is a fundamental fantasy here. I mean, there are things which governments can sort of control and things which they can't. I always point out that this is a, a, a country which has for many years been unable effectively to teach people to read, write and, and, and count in 11 years of state education. So the idea that it can control a virus seems to be a bit of a stretch. Uh, I don't. It's like legislating for, the, for, for which way the wind should blow. There are the things you simply can't do. And there is no evidence. There still has been, in all these months of trial and tribulation, no evidence at all that any of these measures that have been taken have actually affected events. If you look, as I say repeatedly, at the international picture, you cannot find uh, any correlation between the severity of shutdown and the following result. It doesn't exist. And we've seen that in, I think, 19 out of 20 places on which these horrible things have been visited, uh, no result, no visible result. So what do you draw from that, that in, in the one place where it happened, it works, 
or that it doesn't work in the one place where there was a, a reduction. It had nothing to do with the with, with the measures. That would seem to me to be the intelligent deduction to draw. But people continue to assume. They assume two things. One, they you hear it over and over again. If we'd shut down harder and faster, it would have been better. And the other is uh, that, well, we have to put up with it because uh, because the government knows best. Mm. Well, the government doesn't know best. It's quite plain they don't know best. They are, they, it, it, if they had the proper blazing beam of scrutiny directed against them by the media, which they ought to have had from the start, they would be shivering in fear. Uh, if they had a parliament which, which asked questions and which demanded explanations, they would be shivering in fear. If they were compelled to come up with the supposed evidence for their measures, they would be shivering in fear because it's increasingly plain they have got no such evidence no, that's right and when these when these these northern local government figures say well can you please tell us why it is you're proposing to ruin us they can't come up with it no well, how, I was, is, I was, how is it these people remain in office i was i, I was slightly encouraged last week at prime minister's questions when keir starmer actually asked for the evidence for the 10 p.m curfew but then the next day i somehow went along with it um, well, and we know that there is no evidence for it it's a strange aberration. I, I, you can't really understand what he thinks he's playing out. I think he, the, the, his instincts, uh, oddly enough, as the instincts of so many left-wing people are, are in favour of more control, I mm. think. I don't, th I don't think he really, deep down, uh, understands that, that this might not be right. He's a very interesting person, Keir Starmer. Uh, with a much more interesting background than most people realise. So people went on and on about Jeremy Corbyn being, uh, being, being an old trot, uh, which no doubt he was, a sort of steam-age Trotskyist. Yeah, Keir still Star, is, really. Keir Starmer also has a deeply, profoundly left-wing background and, and was uh, uh, and was a member of a very small uh, Marxist sect uh, at, at crucial moments of his life. He, he's, he's not actually a particularly um, radical thinker. I, I, it's time there was more attention given to him, I think. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. But, I mean, we've got a kind of a political um, weirdness, I think, going on, because a lot of the northern towns uh, which are being targeted, we are told, uh, seem to be in the in the grip of, of, of Labour administrations, if, if, if not local councils. Um, but I don't think that's the important factor here. I think the fact is that, you know, they're looking at the wrong data, as ever. I've got a piece of paper here in which there are listings of university campuses and university student uh, populations and all of them are where there is a high percentage of cases, whereby, for example, the top one in Nottingham, 54% of the population in that particular area where there are a large number of cases are students. And so um, the, the average age, apparently, of the infections is 21. And I asked Professor Carol Sakura how many of these kids are ill, and he said none. No, I think that's probably right. I was patrolling my hometown Oxford yesterday and came across, quite by accident, another testing centre, actually in one of our uh -huh. two... Universities. It was on the premises of, of, of Brooks University, the, the, the second university, which I, I hadn't even realised was there before. Right. Uh, but it, yet again, one says, if you look uh, for cases, you will find them, and therefore these figures don't mean anything. I've been tracking the figures for hospital admissions since Matt Hancock said on September the 18th that they were doubling every seven to eight days. Mm. Actually, they haven't. There was one period of eight days in which they did double. Uh, but the the word every doesn't allow you to get away with that. It, it has to do it every eight days. They're not doing that. And the other thing is I've been trying to get out of the Department of Health or, or one of its crangos some sort of uh, explanation. How many of the people who are listed as COVID admissions actually had COVID when they arrived? How many were found to have it after they arrived? How many of them have COVID symptoms? And it's remarkably difficult to get these answers. Uh, and of course, if you if you subject the admissions figures to serious analysis, you might find that they didn't mean what they appear to mean. Just as the the death figures for COVID didn't mean what they appeared to mean at the height of the, the height of the outbreak back in March and April, people should learn to be how should, I would, not necessarily suspicious, but at the very least more sceptical of, of the figures which are advanced by a government which was prepared to hold. That grotesque non-press conference uh, for which we delayed our, our chat a few weeks ago. These are not people who can necessarily be relied upon uh, to, to to be absolutely straight with us. And I think more suspicion is justified. And I shall continue to apply it. I just hope that my colleagues and so-called rivals do so as well. Yeah, well, that's very true. I mean, again, another conversation with Professor Sakura. I said if there was any other kind of disease which had this level of, of, of kind of obsession 
from any government, you would be sitting there in your uh, pyjamas absolutely in fear of death of, from the world. You know, I mean, for example, if they gave a press conference every day to say that uh, around 500 people died yesterday of cancer, people would probably think that cancer might be a very dangerous disease, which indeed it is, which does indeed cost 165,000 people their lives every year in this country. But we don't make a big thing of it. And to, no. have, a, to have a press conference to say that one person died or 10 people died, I mean, it seems ridiculous. Well, say it again, 1,600 people, it's terribly sad in every case, 1,600 people die every day in this country for various reasons. Mm. And this is something which cannot be avoided and the, the, the and, and will always be the case. Uh, the question is what, what sense you make of these figures. There's another very curious thing that's been going on. I think it's over now, but I, I haven't actually checked this morning. But last week there was this extraordinary great Barrington Declaration, yeah. in which several major scientists of left and right, this was a politically un, uh, unpartisan group, uh, said that it was time that we adopted a different approach and allowed most people to live their lives normally while the, the, the vulnerable were, were protected if they wished to be. And this declaration uh, uh, received quite a lot of support, but if you went to the Google search engine and looked for it at certain points over the weekend, all you found were links to uh, various websites abusing it. Uh, and, and, and saying rude things about it. The thing itself, I had to get down to, I think, page seven of Google results to find a link to the actual document. Mm. And this is really big. I got, uh, I think, I got shadow banned uh, by YouTube a few months ago. I remember, yeah. And, and you can't prove it. But what is going on here? Why do people think that, they, that they're entitled to, to keep from people an event as important as this? If the Great Barrington Declaration gets, and it still needs from some, particularly the BBC, some really serious examination, I guess the publicity it deserves, it makes it plain that one thing is not true. And that claim that science is all on one side in this matter. There are scientists who profoundly disagree with the policies of most governments on this and think that others should be adopted, and they should be heard. So in, in whose interest would it be to make that declaration of these eminent people hard to find? Well, this is right. And also all of these kind of organisations like Twitter, for example, stepping in. Now, there will be plenty of people that say, you know, Donald Trump shouldn't go around saying that he's immune from COVID. But we talk about herd immunity and nobody suddenly says that's a completely ridiculous idea. Twitter's taken it upon themselves to suggest that Donald Trump has somehow misled the public by saying uh, yeah. that he thinks he's immune. Well, he's the president of the United States. It's not really I didn't realise that Twitter had suddenly become the sole voice of reason uh, on how COVID works. I think people have to understand that these these enormous social media outfits are themselves um, partisan. They're not necessarily politically partisan to one party or another, but they are certainly at least partisan to, say, British newspapers, yeah. which are of, of the left or of the right. And I think it would be... It, 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 it's, it's time that people understood that that's what they're dealing with. I'm, I'm not a great enthusiast, Mr Trump, as you know, so I, I'm, I'm not terribly distressed to see... Uh, <laughs> that happened to him but it no but it's it, like you've often said peter you know what it, what it, what if when they come for you uh yeah, you know yeah. that then, then then it's you that gets affected i know but i'm not then i have to defend myself and, and seek the help of others to do so but I, I, I i'm not going to as a result of that suddenly say i'm sorry if anybody else is attacked and i will i will rally against them if they're unjustly attacked i rally i rally in their favor if they're unjustly attacked but that's it's also it's not going to make me stop being critical of, of of people who are who are attacked just because they are attacked. Uh, sometimes you know, these attacks are justified. So uh, I just do want to make it plain over and over again. I'm not a not a supporter of Mr. Trump or indeed of Mr. Biden. And, uh, and I, I, I look at the American presidential election with nothing but despair for the future. But it, the thing that people must understand is that social media are not neutral, and that there are algorithms in operation. It seems to me, which are uh, which which create the, the sort of effects of the shadow banning that I think I underwent, though I could never prove it, and which seems to be in operation over the, the unavailability to people who use the most popular search engine uh, of information about the Great Barrington Declaration. It's, and it's not, uh, we don't live in a perfectly free society if people shouldn't assume that we do. That's my basic message. No, indeed. Well, you won't be surprised to know that uh, they're up to their old tricks at this briefing. Steve Powis, who apparently is the NHSE medical director, uh, is up now drawing parallels with France, uh, where he says there has been a warning that without new measures... There we are. There's that great phrase. There will be 11,000 intensive care patients by the middle of November. I mean, they've done all this before. 
Well, I think we should just uh, write down these predictions, and, and when the date comes around, we should check to see what's actually happened. And then, then those who have made these predictions should be should be strongly held to account if they turn out not to be true. Yeah. Then again, one has to watch out for things which may happen between now and then, such as the redefinition of what an intensive care patient is, uh, a, a redefinition of, of what a COVID case mm. is, uh, whether it's with or of, and all these other things. You, you have to be careful. I, I was very interested by the way in which the, the admissions to hospital, uh, allegedly with COVID, rose quite sharply on two occasions after the government started making an issue out of this, and after people began saying, well, test figures are not particularly indicative. The only things that matter are the, are the deaths and the admission figures. Well, the deaths are still quite hard to manipulate in any substantial mm. Obviously, you can, by classification, make them look bigger than they are. Uh, but the hospital admissions, I, I think, really do deserve a lot of a lot of serious examination of what they actually mean. And if if they if figures of the kind projected in intensive care units are are reached, then I think again we have to look and see what exactly these figures mean. I, I'm I, I don't trust, I'm afraid, this government anymore uh, on its use of statistics. Uh, I just find that over and over again, it's prepared to do things which are which which appear to me to be to be reprehensible. And I think when we eventually have the inquiry into this, one of the things that needs to be looked into is, is, is the way in which statistics were presented. I think the problem is, Peter, that a lot of people are in your position as well now. People who did uh, support the government, who voted for the government, and who even supported, like I did, the original lockdown. Um, I think more than um, at least 50% of the population, and that's my estimation, it's not uh, any more true to form than any other statistic. Um, but people that I talk to, people that call the show, people that tweet me, you know, most people now in this country do not trust the government's data because they believe it's being manipulated in some way. And yet, there is still quite strong popular support for these for these new measures. And I think we have to be aware of the fact that the, the, the people still, in general, uh, the, the great majority of people still, in general, believe that we are imperiled by a very, very serious disease, which, if allowed, as Mr. Hancock keeps saying, to let rip, will kill hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. And they're prepared to do all kinds of things, from from mask wearing to staying at home to to, uh, to to not going out in the evening to whatever it happens to be, because of this fear. And until that fear is dispelled, or until it's overcome, and I'm I'm, I'm very sorry to put it like this, but until it's overcome by a, a fear of the appalling economic consequences of what's coming, I think that's going to govern public opinion. I, there won't be. My strong suspicion is there will not be serious resistance at the beginning in, in the north because of the, the economic misery which comes with this latest shutdown. Uh, this thing will not seriously begin to be challenged until the hard economic consequences, the the, the long summer dream, is coming to an end. People are actually going to find that they have no jobs to refer to. That the, the government money isn't coming. That's the, an enormous bill is going to be presented when Rishi Sunak finally summons up the courage to have the budget. And at that point, I think that it, it will be overborne rather than dispelled. People will suddenly find that they have much more pressing worries uh, than an invisible virus which doesn't actually affect very many people. And at that point, it will go. But what I'm anxious to do is to try and prevent any more of this horrible economic damage being done before that happens, I think we, those of us who understand what's going on, have this absolute duty to say, for goodness sake, this, that you've strangled the economy enough. If we're to have any economy or any life or any social services or health service or, or proper um, or even a proper functioning society at the end of this, we have to end uh, this destruction mm. of our life. And we also have to protect our personal liberty because if you give it away, it's very, very hard to get it back. And there has to be a huge effort to say, well, that's enough. The government's mm. Too much power. I, the, the, I believe that the Simon Dolan court case is finally going to get before, uh, before judges on Wednesday, unless they've found another excuse to postpone it. Right. Uh, this is extraordinarily important because of the total absence of, say, proper parliamentary opposition. The only place in which this, this, thing, this thing can be challenged is in the courts. And we have here a, a, a case at least as important as that of Gina Miller. But you wouldn't know it from the BBC or large parts of the, of the, of the newspaper press that, that it's even going on. It's hugely important that this case is properly considered and properly heard. And I, it would be 
absolutely tremendous if the judges would look at it and, and, and see that they've, they've been given a responsibility to save hundreds of thousands of jobs and, and tens of thousands of businesses. And, and, and will they, will they, what are they tasked with on, on, on Wednesday? Are they tasked with deciding whether it's admissible or not? Not if, if the thing is, if, if they think that they're, they're holding their hearing in, in silence with nobody looking, uh, they may be less sensitive to the importance of it than if it's, it's widely publicized. And that's why I, I beg anybody who has any role in the government who thinks this thing is serious to make sure that people are aware that this case is on. Because I think the mere fact that people are looking will make the, the courts perhaps take it more seriously. Well, the thing about what we are doing here and what we are seeing is that logic dictates that whenever you look at what's been going on since March, you know, there are many logical fallacies being perpetrated by this government. For example, I'm looking at some slides now that, that uh, Van Damme is putting out, basically talking about how uh, infections have now gone up to something like 15,000 a day as compared with back in April when they were only at 5,000. But back in April, they weren't testing anyone. And they told us back in April, we think there are 100,000 um, of these infections per day, but we're not measuring them. We're just guessing. So that was a guess. Now they're saying there was only five. Well, it, it, it just seems to me to be an abuse of, of, of position. Everybody who knows anything about this knows that these things are simply not comparing like with like. Mm. We, we were not testing at this level, and, and, and if we had been testing at that level, and, and, and indeed we've been testing, for instance, in care homes at that time, uh, the, the, the results would have meant something wholly different. How, the, the question has, 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 the point has to be made, these tests are not diagnoses. Uh, they're simply positive or negative tests, and they, uh, many of them are quite possibly false. And the question which has to be asked over and over again is these people may have tested positive, but are they ill? In, in March or April, you, we know for certain that a lot of people were uh, there many of them, as I say, were in care homes or, or on their way to them. And by the way, have you noticed that Amnesty International produced last week a report on what happened in care homes? And it's barely reported or covered. Because it was very condemnatory of what the government did. And I, I, I urge people to find it on the web and see uh, this is the sort of thing which a proper inquiry into what the government has done will find. But why wasn't this covered more? Yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe you could find, if you could uh, tweet out the link to it, that would be great. We could all have a look at it and I can, I can retweet it. Well, I, I did last week. I'll do it again. But it, it, it's, it's easy to find. Amnesty International Care Homes, and it'll come up. It's not, it's not one of those hard things. At least it wasn't last time I looked. Maybe it's, it's, it's good. It's, <laughs> Google it now. All you find is lots and lots of, lots and lots of people attacking it. Yes, absolutely right. One final word, Peter, just on the Darren Grimes situation, because uh, you know I was I was sort of slightly tongue in cheek, suggesting that a police officer might wish to come and sit in to the studio here with me to make sure that I challenge everyone that I interview uh, enough, so that I don't actually get threatened with arrest uh, for not doing so. Uh, or indeed, maybe we should go and sit in on some police interviews inside the police station to see how they're doing it. Well, do you know, in pre-1914 Germany, a police officer used to attend all public meetings, uh, taking notes. Yeah. And this is the way we're going. But it, it, people don't seem to realize just how politicized the police have become. It didn't just happen last night. Uh, and I do recommend my book, The Abolition of Liberty, for an explanation of what's going wrong with the police and why it is that the failure to prevent crime actually walks hand in hand with an increasing willingness to interfere in free speech and uh, and everything that goes with it. The, the two are connected. You, you, you get uh, a, a more attacks on free speech um, from the police uh, in the state where crime is not prevented than you do in one where crime mm. is prevented. Extraordinary stuff. Well, Peter, listen, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Uh, enjoy the week. We'll look forward to your column on Sunday. Uh, we'll look out for the Amnesty International report as well. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist. Well, what can I tell you? You know, the uh, briefing goes on. But there's a lot more interesting stuff coming out on Talk Radio. That's what I'm telling you. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, though, uh, it is that time of the day where we uh, have the 12.30 news finishing and we have the homeschooling beginning. Now, many of you uh, will be getting ready for half term. And some of you might even be thinking about going somewhere for half term. Good luck with that. Uh, but, of course, uh, most of you will just be uh, happy that your children have returned to school in September and hopefully they're still there. But nevertheless, we are continuing with our homeschooling because we rather like it uh, and it's rather good fun and it's rather educational. Today, we're going to talk to Francis Tophill, gardening expert, presenter from Gardener's World. 
because I know a lot of people started doing this during lockdown, uh, particularly if they lived outside of the city and they had a little bit of green space, a little bit of garden, growing their own vegetables, right? Francis, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, thank you for having me. Not at all, thank you very much. Now, it may come as a great surprise to you, but I've actually grown my own vegetables in a in a previous life. I lived in a kind of young ones style house when I was at university in Bath and we had no money at all. And one of them decided to become a vegan. So we thought, here's what we're going to do. We're going to grow loads of uh, vegetables. And we grew tomatoes, we grew strawberries, we grew green beans. We had so many green beans that we had to eat them every night. It was great though. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I think once you start, it's very easy to get lots and lots of things growing. And that's what's been found during the lockdown. So many people have been growing and 40 percent of people have found the lockdowns inspired them to start growing vegetables. Yeah, which is fantastic. And they also taste brilliant, don't they? Because, I mean, we know that from just buying organic fruit and vegetables if we can, rather than the sort of waxy versions that you get in some of the supermarkets. But if you actually grow them in your own garden, they, I mean, I remember the tomatoes were amazing. We used to take them off the uh, the vine when they were green and just put them on the windowsill until they turned red. And they were so tasty. I mean, that's the thing. Higgity have done this research and launched this competition to celebrate their um, veggie ready meals coming into Waitrose. And the whole idea of this is just understanding that vegetables are about taste. And if you mm. grow them yourself, as you say, so much nicer um, and people have found this this research shows that people have found it's been um, stress relieving it's been good for their mental health and their physical health educating children as well and yet yeah, made their food taste better which is which is the point yeah it? and i mean is there a sort of minimum amount of space that you need i mean because i know that there are probably some people in, in in cities maybe in london who've got a window box and you can grow something in that can't you yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a tiny garden here and I've managed to absolutely cram it. I have an allotment as well. And I, I reckon I've got as much growing here in this tiny little space as I have on my whole allotment. It's just about clever use of space. It's about picking what you what you want to grow. And here, for example, in an urban area, it's a bit warmer. I've got lots of chilies growing, which oh, is really? something that, yeah, loads of them. And they're all producing lots of fruit as well. Don't tell, so me, don't tell me you got them out of those funny little matchbooks you used to get from Oaxaca, though, because I've tried growing <laughs> chilies out of those. It doesn't work. No, no, I actually bought some seeds. I managed to get some seeds at the beginning of lockdown. Um, so, yeah, lots of chilies and you can grow them outside or you can grow them on a windowsill in okay. a pot. Plenty of food, plenty of water. And the good news is if they're not yet fruiting now, you can keep them over the winter in the house. And right. then hopefully juice things. And are they, are they like, because you can buy those chilli plants, can't you, sometimes, which mm. I've seen. Are they, how, how can you tell how hot they are, for example? Um, you can usually get them from the seed packet. But that's another great thing about growing vegetables is that you can choose. So there's loads of different cultivars of things that usually in supermarkets, you just get one kind of veg. Whereas, you know, the whole idea of growing your own is that you have a huge range of different kinds, different flavours, different colours. Mm. You know, if that's what you're into, you can have a whole host of unusual veg. And that's what actually has been brought up in this research is that people are very interested in growing different kinds of veg, unusual veg, exotic veg. Yeah. And you can do that in the tiniest space or even in your house if you haven't got a garden at all. Okay. And what's the easiest thing, would you say, to grow? So somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, you know, what's my, where, where do I begin? What would your first thing you should advise people to do um i would say two things number one potatoes it's great if you have a new patch and this competition is about getting um new areas of unloved spaces within the community and turning them into productive vegetable gardens so if you're starting a new space like this potatoes is great because it breaks up the soil you just get seed potatoes in the spring dig a trench stick them in leave them alone and then you'll have potatoes to harvest and dig up um and how long roughly summer. does that take uh, a few months okay. so by the end of the summer you get your earlies and then through into the autumn um your late crop or your main crop right. that you can be harvesting right through but then i would say at the same time is sow some seeds there's something really magical and especially if you're educating your children about biology and botany get some seeds going in compost mm. on the windowsill wet uh, kitchen roll that works as well and just to see that germination process yeah. and understand that in such a tiny case you can have a huge plant by the end of just one year sunflowers yes. is fantastic yeah my, my kids over years have had things like mustard cress that they've grown which has always been mm -hmm. fun to do and, and one of them one of them at the moment is growing an avocado because he took, amazing you know, actually got it to work you know that thing where you suspend the um the stone mm -hmm. over water with three cocktail sticks and it's actually works the first time i've actually seen it working but it's actually working 
It's amazing. And I've done the same thing this year with things like lemongrass and ginger okay. from the supermarket. Wow. So, you know, because you know, the seeds were at short supply at the beginning of the lockdown. And you can still, um, lots of vegetables, you can just chop the top off, use them in your cooking, which mm. after all is what they're for. Yeah. Stick them in a glass of water or in some compost and they'll regrow. And I've got huge lemongrass plants now wow. from that. That's good because so lemongrass is quite hard to get sometimes. It is. And it, as you say, tastes better when you grow it yourself. Um, and it's just something very satisfying about having a windowsill filled with plants. Right. Um, and greenery generally is just so good for our mental well-being. Absolutely right. And as far as the, um, the, the things that you need to grow stuff, I mean, you don't need much, do you? You don't have to buy loads of equipment or any kind of special. I seem to remember that we had our, our green beans on sort of little V-shaped trellises. But you don't need yeah. to do all that, do you? No, you don't. There, there are a lot of ways of growing vegetable very, very cheaply. Seeds, I would say seeds, compost and obviously water uh, are the main things. If you have things in pots, you will need a bit of plant food as well. Mm. Um, but you can get that in all kinds of ways. And if you're lucky enough to have things like chickens of your own, then their manure is quite good for vegetable growing, if you can bear well, to do it. So, there's, there's a lot uh, of it as well. Funnily enough, in that, <laughs> in that same incarnation, we had two chickens, right? Um, oh, wow. And we thought that one of them had stopped laying eggs right and so it was you could tell it was student times right we had a um had a meeting house meeting and decided that if the chicken had stopped laying eggs it would have to be executed um because it was of no longer any 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 contribution to the household right so, so somebody was important none of us wanted to do it so we imported somebody's brother who worked in a an abattoir sorry about this story but it's quite funny um and we killed the chicken and then discovered a whole cache of eggs at the end of the garden. He'd been laying them. She'd been laying them somewhere else. But then we ate oh, no. the chicken, and the chicken was the most delicious chicken I've ever eaten. It was that good. Oh, well, so it works with birds. I've not kept them myself, but it's nice to know that it works yeah. with your no, own no, animals. Yeah, well. no, it is. It's absolutely brilliant. So, I mean, you know, if people are not um, um, growing their own veg, give them, give them the sort of the reason why they should do it. Well, I think this research has showed that, you know, 50% of people um, make excuses not to grow their own veg, but that a lot of them would feel more confident to do it if they had a community to support them. And I think that's where this comes in. If you have a space, if you have a bit of ground that you, that's going spare, going begging, unloved, unused in a school, something like that, you can apply to Higgity get £5,000 worth, which is a lot of money. As we've discussed, it doesn't take a lot of money to yeah. veg, but that can be a real big kickstart. And then build that community of growers, get kids involved, get older people involved because they have all that knowledge there. And just build a space where you can safely mix outside, no more than six, but you know, mix outside and meet people around you because I think we've all realised how important it is this year, how, you know, what is important and maybe what isn't so important that we thought was important. So yes. that's that's what I would say is, is is start make a start. Okay, brilliant. And you can get seeds for any of this stuff fairly easily at garden centres and that kind of thing. Garden centres, supermarkets. You know, you can even save seeds from the vegetables that you're eating at home: tomatoes, chilies, all those things. Mm. Keep a few of the seeds aside and sow them next year, and you never know. Indeed, Francis. Thank you very much indeed, Francis Tophill, uh, gardening expert, presenter from Gardens World, with a great idea uh, that if you haven't done it, it, really, I mean, especially if you've got children, they love to see things growing, and they're really actually quite good at it and you can have green fingers or not um, but the, the stuff that you do grow i promise you uh, you will find the taste so much better than anything that you can buy uh, just because it's done locally and it's done in your own back garden so it's tremendous talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.